Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for watching ADH TV. I'm Alan Jones and you won't regret being with us tonight. If you're tired from reading all this stuff about Scott Morrison and an inquiry into his secrecy, stay with me. I'll tell you what secrecy in government really is about. Yesterday, August 24, was Ukraine's Independence Day. It was a sombre anniversary after a half year of death and destruction. I'll try to bring you up to date on that front. I was in the gym this morning and a gentleman on the exercise bike turned to me and said, Alan, what a world we're living in. Is there any hope? I'll give you some examples that will rattle your teeth about how stupid sections of the world have become to whet your appetite. There's a club in Sydney with a safety and harassment policy. To make the venue a safe space, if you stare at someone across the room, you'll be banned, kicked out. The rule says, if the attention you're giving someone is unwarranted, that's considered harassment, unquote. And security can kick you out because you might have made someone else feel uncomfortable. I hope outfits like this go broke. Tonight, I'll inject a little of sport into the program, a bit of AFL, a bit of rugby league and rugby union, though I note that Daniel Ricciardo, an eminently pleasant human being, and a classy Formula One driver with Team McLaren has reached an agreement with McLaren to end that association at the end of the season. He'll be paid out for the rest of his contract, reportedly the tune of $24 million. The bloke with the wonderful smile will have a bigger smile, I'm sure, as a result. Interestingly, he will be replaced, we're told, by 21-year-old fellow Australian Oscar Piastri, the 21-year-old rising star of Formula One racing. But as I said, on the sporting front, there's a big event happening in Sydney this weekend, and we'll look at that later in the program. And the thrust of it will be the opening on Sunday of this magnificently rebuilt Allianz Stadium at Sydney's Moor Park. It's been a long and controversial journey, but trust me, this may well rank as the finest stadium, at least in the Southern Hemisphere, if not the world. I'll talk to Tony Shepherd, the chairman of Venues New South Wales, who's been associated with more outstanding infrastructure creations in this country than any other person. Each week of this time, I talk to Daniel Wild, but I want to raise with him this so-called issue of transparency and secrecy and accountability that we seem to be worried about in relation to Scott Morrison, because I would argue that if the Albanese government is about those three things, transparency, secrecy and accountability, there are many areas of government policy where there is no transparency, no accountability and total secrecy. And I have something for the archives for you to close the program tonight. You think Chris Bowen, the energy minister, is an arrogant dope? Well, I'll prove to you that people like Bowen have learnt nothing, therefore they can forget nothing. But to give you one example that you'd be familiar with, you need copper to build wind turbines and solar panels. To replace fossil fuels for 20 years, you'd need 4.5 billion tonnes of copper. But in 2019, the world only mined 24 million tonnes. So it would take 189 years to produce enough copper to get to net zero, to get rid of fossil fuels at the current rate of production. 
That and more is all coming up here on ADH TV. I'm Alan Jones. I think people are tired of what they perceive as a get square attack on former Prime Minister Morrison with the commitment to put legislation before the federal parliament when it returns in September to ensure that no future Prime Minister can secretly appoint himself to other ministries. Anthony Albanese says that the Morrison story, quote, is an issue of transparency and secrecy and accountability, unquote. I'll come to this secrecy bit in a moment because the Prime Minister, his words, his words, wants to, quote, ensure there is absolute confidence in our political system and our political processes going forward, unquote. Now, Anthony Albanese has been in federal parliament for 26 years. Does Anthony Albanese seriously believe that you and I and others, the punter, the voter, the bloke in the pub, have, quote, absolute confidence in our political system and our political processes, unquote? And that some inquiry will end for all time the issue of government secrecy. I hope we're too smart to fall for this stuff. I spoke yesterday about the urgent need for a Royal Commission into the damaging coronavirus response by all governments. Everything was secret. We were told nothing. Why were we banned from private homes? Why were curfews enforced by the police and the army? What was the epidemiological evidence for this? We were told nothing. What evidence existed to justify stopping our children going to school or having access to their playgrounds? What evidence existed that justified stopping Australians from going to the funeral of a family member? So forget Scott Morrison and a few ministerial responsibilities. This stuff was all secret. I could go on. The ultimate secrecy was that the views of eminent international epidemiologists were kept secret, unacknowledged by all governments because they disagreed with the ruthless and draconian response to coronavirus. As I said last night, have your inquiry into Scott Morrison. But first tell us, Prime Minister, why you will avoid a forensic examination, an all-in Royal Commission, into what still remains secret. I kept saying those months ago, show me a piece of paper that justifies what you're about. It never materialised. And indeed, I was threatened with being cancelled. Anthony Albanese better understand one thing. It'll take more than an inquiry into Scott Morrison to fix our total lack of trust in politicians. They'll not tell us what we're entitled to know. Will Albo tell us how you get to 43% carbon dioxide emissions without damaging agriculture and transport? Will they tell us how you can guarantee electricity to businesses and homes by pursuing an unachievable 82% renewable energy target by 2030? The Prime Minister says he wants to investigate secrecy in government. He's practising it. No information on this critical energy issue. All we get is the finger-pointing arrogance of the Minister Bowen. I suspect Albo himself doesn't have a clue. Let's pursue this point of secrecy. Last night in my closing comment, I raised the critical issue of fuel supplies, that if China were to play games, we could well be fresh out of petrol. Does the government take the voter into its confidence and tell us what we are entitled to know? A few years ago, we had eight oil refineries. There are two left. Last year, the coalition government got nervous and gave $2.35 billion, your money, borrowed, to underwrite the losses of two remaining private sector oil refineries, Ampol in Brisbane and Viva in Geelong. Private sector oil refineries losing money, throw them $2.35 billion of borrowed money. What's the problem? Another secret. 
There are plenty of industries like tourism, agriculture, travel, hospitality, entertainment, that will be happy with 2.35 billion. But this is about fuel security. How critical is this? No one in government answers that question. The answer is secret. Well, I'll tell you the answer. At any one time, there are 45 tankers on the high seas bringing crude oil and refined products to our refineries and bowsers. 90 tankers call at Australian ports each month. The two refineries we are propping up are refining imported crude oil. You won't be told any of this, except on this program. 60% of our daily liquid fuel consumption comes from directly imported refined product, 60%. Much of it refined in Singapore. What about the other 40% of our fuel consumption? It comes from our domestic refineries, but we've got to get the crude oil here from the Middle East. 80% of the crude oil that goes into our refineries is imported. 90% of all liquid fuel, crude and refined, is imported. You know what's coming next. As I said last night, if China were to play games in the South China Sea or the Malacca Strait that separates Malaysia from Indonesia, what happens to our fuel supplies? China are building a $40 billion city in Papua New Guinea. It'll be a naval base. They'll be able to control maritime traffic through the Torres Strait. Well, let me tell you another secret. No one in government can guarantee our fuel security. And we obviously can't be trusted to be told that. China aims to control the Torres Strait. There are a stack of these naval bases in the South China Sea under our international obligations and in the interest of our own security. We're meant to have 90 days of fuel in reserve. We've got 58, not even two months. How vulnerable are we? Are we as an electorate too immature to have this discussed with us? Or is it another secret, the response to which we won't be told? If we want to guarantee for fuel security, when 90% of our liquid fuel is imported, we're going to have to do more than prop up two refineries with $2.35 billion of borrowed money where once we had eight. So, when will we start talking to China to guarantee that our tankers on the high seas that bring in crude oil and the refined product to Australia will be guaranteed safe passage through maritime routes predominantly controlled by China? Or is that another secret about which we'll be told nothing? I'm not an alarmist, but depending on the severity of any interruption, let me make this point. The impact of shutting off our imported liquid fuel supplies would be far worse than any terrorist attack. Why aren't we meeting our international obligations to have 90 days of fuel supplies in reserve? Or is that another secret? The seriousness of this issue makes an inquiry into the previous Prime Minister, giving himself five alternative administrative portfolios and keeping it secret, it doesn't even rate compared to the seriousness of what I have outlined above. So when Prime Minister Albanese tells us that the Morrison issue is about transparency, secrecy and accountability, no, Prime Minister, I could give you a list as long as your arm, where on critical issues, the voter who pays your way and pays excessively for government, the voter is kept completely in the dark. Well, look, let's go as we do each week to Daniel Wilde, the Deputy Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs. You will recall the last time we spoke, it was in reference to the IPA's paper, Australia's Debt Disaster, 
and the estimate that interest on the debt by 2030 would approximate $89 billion, double the current annual defence budget, double the current annual education budget, equivalent to the cost of purchasing a fleet of six nuclear submarines. Interest repayments will be the fastest growing area of federal government spending. But of course, only people like Daniel Wilde and me will tell you this. The government won't talk about debt. I mentioned earlier today the rhetoric from the Albanese government about the much publicised inquiry into the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison with the commitment to put legislation before the federal parliament when it returns in September to ensure that no future Prime Minister can secretly appoint himself to other ministries. And as I reminded you earlier, Anthony Albanese said that, quote, it is an issue of transparency and secrecy and accountability, unquote. The Prime Minister wants to, quote, ensure there is absolute confidence in our political system and our political processes going forward, unquote. And I wanted aloud, if we were too silly, to fall for this stuff. Let me bring in Daniel Wilde on this question of secrecy. Daniel, thank you for your time again. But during the coronavirus and this reckless and unnecessary spending when people who weren't at risk were told they couldn't work and businesses were closed and billions of dollars of compensation was dished out with borrowed money, hence the debt that you and I have talked about, we were told the vaccinations were free, the boosters were free, the testing was free, but nothing's free. Daniel, if we're talking about secrecy, when do you think we'll be told what the pharmaceutical companies were paid for what was allegedly free? Well, Alan, great to be with you as always. And you raise a very important point about nothing is free. And what about all the other secrecy components of, of COVID throughout the entire lockdown period? We've had no or very little accountability or transparency. So many decisions were made in the absence of parliaments even sitting. And we know that many Australians... Uh, did very well out of the pandemic. You've identified uh, one group, but you know what we also know is if you're a public servant or a big business bureaucrat, well, your wages went up, your jobs went up. You could sit from home in your big house, uh, in your laptop, uh, working from home, but it was mainstream Australians in, in living in the suburbs trying to bring up three kids, homeschool them, hold down a job in a small business. They're the ones that incurred the cost, but they didn't have a voice because both sides of politics supported the lockdowns. We had no media accountability. We had the secrecy that you've identified. And look, we need to get to the bottom of what happened through, as you've said, a royal commission into, into the handling of, of COVID because what Morrison did was plainly wrong and unethical. But that goes across the entire two years of, of what we did Absol here in Australia with, with the COVID at the federal and state levels. Absolutely right. I mean, to use the Prime Minister's language, he says these things about Scott Morrison is an issue of transparency, secrecy, and accountability. And again, to use the Prime Minister's words, how can you, quote, ensure there is absolute confidence in our political system and our political processes going forward if we're not provided with that basic information? I mean, I raised earlier in the program the question of secrecy, that everything about the coronavirus response was secret and that there should be a Royal Commission. Now, we were told nothing. I kept asking, Daniel, through all of this, where is the piece of paper that justifies banning visitors from private homes, that justifies the curfews enforced by the police and the army. Where was the epidemiological evidence of any of this? We were told absolutely nothing. And in the end, for asking those very questions, you were cancelled. You're actually told you can't say these things, you can't talk about this. How is that different from the former Prime Minister not telling us that he had accepted administrative responsibility for five portfolios? 
Well, you were one of the few guiding lights and commentators and analysts, Alan, who were speaking about this at the time, and there was too few in, in Australia who were willing to speak out on, on these many issues. And just to build on your point, we were told to begin with that it was all about flattening the curve so we could secure medical supplies. And I don't think anyone really disagreed with the premise of that. But very quickly, very quickly, it went from flattening the curve uh, to suppressing the virus to eliminating it, to having zero COVID. Now, as you know, and any sensible person knows, you can't eliminate a virus. You can maybe make it dormant for a while, but you can't eliminate it. It was always going to get out into the community. And the question we had to deal with from day one is how are we going to live with COVID? How are we going to protect the most vulnerable Correct. of our citizens while allowing everybody else yeah. to get on with our lives? But the real problem here, and this gets back to your point of secrecy, there was no debate. None. There was no vote. The parliament was shut didn't down. Sit when these decisions were made. And yeah. as you say, people were cancelled and political correctness yeah. meant that there was simply no debate. Yeah, I mean, you're right, Daniel, talking about secrecy. The parliaments were shut. There was no evidence that any of this stuff could be justified. Like, what was the evidence I asked to justify keeping children out of school? Perhaps that's secret. We weren't told. I mean, it's all very well to have a bash at Scott Morrison about the secrecy of what he did. Fair enough. And that's unethical and it shouldn't be done and so on. But why are we secret of even today in producing evidence to show why we we're able to keep children out of school, why they couldn't have access to their playgrounds? It must be all secret. It must be going to remain secret. I mean, the ultimate secrecy, Daniel, was that the views of eminent international epidemiologists were kept secret, ignored by all governments because they disagreed with the ruthless and draconian response to coronavirus. So, Daniel, this question, if the Albanese government want an inquiry to Scott Morrison, Who's going to demand the Prime Minister provide a forensic examination, an all-in Royal Commission, into the response to coronavirus? Well, we have to be demanding and we have to keep up the case, Alan, because it was a shameful time in our nation's history. Here where I live in Melbourne, the, the playgrounds were closed and it was just such a dark time that police were roaming playgrounds yes. to stop children playing yep. on them. At, when you've got much worse crimes being committed. Police were focusing on that among so many other mm. atrocities that were committed against the Australian people. Now, I'll tell you why the media and other components of our civil society don't want to have an inquiry, because they all supported it. Correct. Both sides of politics supported Correct. it. Almost every single media outlet supported what was happening. Almost every, sim uh, every single major civic organisation yeah supported or at least did not speak out against what was happening. Mm. So they were complicit in what governments yep. did. Now, for them to call for an inquiry would be to concede that they were wrong and they are too cowardly to do that. Good on you, 100%. I mean, children have been educationally damaged and stay damaged, emotionally traumatised, their mental well-being utterly compromised. We should know whether this ruthless and brutal exercise of power by government was necessary. I mentioned Michael Koziol wrote this week, and I quote it again, it would be a fairly intellectually impoverished society that was not interested in how exactly these incursions into everyday life were decided upon and what effect they had on curbing the virus. He said the lack of curiosity about these matters is astounding. So, Daniel, if the Prime Minister is talking about transparency, and accountability and sets his face against secrecy, what is the problem with calling a Royal Commission and lining everybody up from premiers and chief ministers and bureaucrats and the so-called experts 
to be part of an all-in royal commission into the pandemic response. They won't do it. No guts. Well, we have to have a royal... Yeah. They've got no guts. And, but we have to have a royal commission to get to the bottom of what happened. Firstly, to make sure that people are held to account yeah. for the decisions that they made. And secondly, to make sure that something like this never, ever happens mm. again. Because okay. only by learning the lessons and only by making it in the public domain, the decisions that were taken and who took them at what time, will we get to the bottom of, as you say, the, the atrocious treatment of the Australian people by governments and by police. And the last point I'd make is we were effectively, certainly in Victoria, effectively living in a one-party state yeah, where no alternative opinion could be expressed. Correct. That must never happen again absolutely. in a free, liberal, democratic society like Australia's. Well, let's go on with this secrecy. What do you think, Daniel, the government is hiding from us on this question of superannuation? I mean, Australians have more than $3 trillion sitting in super. The Treasurer mused this week that it would be good if the super industry directed some of its vast pool of money in the direction of housing and so-called clean energy. He was cautious not to name turbines and solar panels and batteries, but he sure as hell wasn't asking superannuation funds to go out and fund new coal mines or gas projects. Now, if he was talking about removing roadblocks for super to invest, Daniel, what do you think he's up to? Well, I know what he's up to. This is the, the first step, I suspect, on the road to the nationalisation of superannuation. This was always going to happen. Labor was always going to use that big pot of money that is actually not their money, it's the workers' money. Their wages have been garnished through compulsory superannuation. And now Labor will be using it. They're supposed to be the party of workers. They're really the party of woke capital. They're going to be taking these garnished wages and funneling it, funneling it into political pet projects that would otherwise be completely unviable. So as you say, what if a super fund could get a 10% return on a coal mine or a 5% return on wind turbines? Well, I suspect they're going to be forced to invest it in the wind turbines, giving a worse outcome for Australian workers uh, in terms of their retirement uh, to underpin the political uh, projects that Labor want to invest in and spend their money on. Now, the critical point is this, where is the coalition? The coalition supports compulsory super. They've supported the increase in compulsory superannuation contributions. And now we're seeing that Labor will weaponise the $3 trillion of workers' wages in order to attain political benefits. We need to have the coalition having a clear policy differentiation on this critical issue. Absolutely. We're going to have to talk about this further, but just to wind it up for today, I mean, Bowen intends to make electric cars the cheapest form of vehicle. Now, it's nonsense. Bowen is a joke. But according to the International Energy Agency, there's no way in the world that by 2030 we would have any more than 7% of the global vehicle fleet being electric vehicles. That's not Daniel Wyatt, not Alan Jones, the International Energy Agency. Maximum 7%, the International Energy Agency. But Bowen's talking about prohibiting fossil fuel cars by 2030. So, Daniel... If electric vehicles, according to the IEA, we know more than 7% of the global vehicle fleet by 2030, doesn't that mean that Bowen will be forbidding 87% of consumers from buying the cars they want? On those numbers, yes, he will, Alan. This is the problem. The only way that electric vehicles are ever going to have any kind of viability is not by, on their own merits, being attractive to the typical Australian, which they're not, 
is by banning the things that Australians want, which is petrol cars. We are a suburban nation. You know, people go on about, well, Europe does this and Europe does that. That's fine. We're not Europe. We're Australia. We are a predominantly low-density suburban society. We need to have our petrol cars to get around. That is how our nation is structured. And this idea of banning petrol cars Mm. in order to make electric vehicles viable is just another elitist attack on mainstream Australians and the Australian way of life, which happens time and time again under the guise of this net zero climate nonsense. Absolutely, and based on sheer ignorance, which I'll demonstrate later in the program. Daniel, very good to talk to you. Always good to talk to you. Talk to you next week. We'll actually spend some time on this superannuation issue because it's very critical. As you say, it's not the government's money, it's our money. And we'll determine how it's spent, not the government. Talk to you next week, Daniel. Pleasure, thanks, Alan. There he is, Daniel Wild. Yesterday in Europe was the 24th of August. It was a public holiday in Ukraine because on the 24th of August 1991, Ukraine signed a declaration that took them out of the Soviet Union and made them an independent state. It is this all those years ago for which Putin will not forgive Ukraine. In a statement published on its website, the US Embassy in Kiev cited, quote, information that is stepping up efforts to launch strikes against Ukraine's civilian infrastructure and government facilities in the coming days, unquote. And a US State Department official said the warning was most closely tied to concerns surrounding Ukraine's Independence Day celebrations. I might add the celebrations were muted, of course. Large gatherings were banned in Kiev and Ukrainians were understandably sombre about the anniversary after a half year of death and destruction. As an 80-year-old pensioner said, at Independence Square in central Kiev, and I quote, six months, the peace of life has been broken in every family. How much destruction? How many dead? How can we relate to it? Unquote. The most recent serious development concerns how to protect the nuclear plant in southern Ukraine, occupied by Russian troops and threatened by shelling, which Moscow is blaming on Kiev. It is Europe's largest nuclear facility. Ukraine and its allies are demanding Russia pull its troops out of the plant and agree to a demilitarised zone. Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov spoke on Tuesday to the French Foreign Minister about an expected visit to the plant by inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency amid worries over the high risk of a radiation accident. The AIEA head issued a statement on Tuesday deploring last weekend's shelling of the site saying further damage had been caused, and it said it would, quote, help stabilise the nuclear safety and security situation at the site and reduce the risk of a severe nuclear accident in Europe, unquote. Of course, that will depend on Russia. In a further development this week, the 29-year-old Daria Dugina, the daughter of one of Putin's strongest supporters, was assassinated last weekend when the car she was driving Moscow was detonated by a planted bomb. When she was returning from a Russian cultural festival, she had attended with her father. Kiev has denied responsibility for the bombing, which apparently was targeting the young woman's father, Alexander Dugan. Now, nothing justifies this behaviour, but the 60-year-old Alexander Dugan is a piece of work. His hateful philosophy informs Putin's outlook on the world. Dugan's writings are full of hatred of the West. 
He shares with Putin the view that Russia's ultimate destiny is to rule over a massive empire stretching from Western Europe into Asia. He glorifies violence and believes that individuals have no rights. He's a fanatical supporter of Putin, an ultra-ultra-nationalist who believes Ukraine has no independent existence. One theory is that the murder attempt on him, but they got the daughter instead, was mounted by enemies of Dugan and Putin within Russia. The fear is this could result in an escalation of the war, which Washington apparently expects because it has, advi has advised its citizens to leave Ukraine. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz this week warned Russia against further attempts to annex Ukrainian territory in the same way it did with Crimea. Boris Johnson, who I might add, was buoyed by a poll this week of Conservative supporters, which revealed 49% of Tories believe Johnson should stay on as PM, compared with 20% for Sunak and 18% for the Foreign Secretary Trust. Boris Johnson has moved out of Downing Street, but Conservative voters are having seller's remorse over the ousting of Johnson. But back to Ukraine, Johnson argued, quote, it's never been more important for us all to stand together. The Polish president advised against any appeasement, saying, quote, there is no return to business as usual in relations with Russia. The French president Macron vowed that EU support for Ukraine would continue for the long term. Quote, there can be no weakness, no spirit of compromise, because it's a matter of our freedom for everyone and of peace everywhere around the world, unquote. So where are we today? America has sent another almost $5 billion in military aid to Kiev, but if any peace could be negotiated, it would most probably mean that Ukraine would have to give up everything that it didn't control before February 24 this year, and Russia would have to withdraw from everywhere else. Neither side would view that as a win, and Zelensky wouldn't because he didn't tolerate it before February 24. Should he accept that now, the war would have been for nothing, an outcome which Ukrainians would not accept and they would view it as a humiliation. I suppose there will one day be an outcome, but on Independence Day for Ukraine, it seems not until they've endured a lot more fighting and sadly, a lot more deaths. Well, a significant event is occurring in Sydney this Sunday, which enables me to inject a bit of sporting flavour into the program tonight, but before I do, there are some more than interesting sporting stories around, especially in our football codes. If you're an AFL fan, all you can ask is what's happened to Essendon? The coach has been sacked, the chief executive went on Wednesday, two directors will go and the vice president later this year. So the Bombers, Essendon, are on the hunt for a new CEO if you're after a job, a senior coach and a likely captain to replace Dyson Heppel for 2023. On the coaching front, could James Hurd appallingly treated by the AFL over the supplements saga seven years ago. Could he return as coach? He should. In Rugby League, Penrith, minor premiers again, which they deserve, but minor premierships don't guarantee the ultimate prize. Cronulla under Craig Fitzgibbon are a massive threat. They haven't hosted a semi-final at their traditional home since 2008. Common sense has prevailed and they'll have a home semi-final should they finish second on the ladder. If Souths beat the Cowboys this weekend and Cronulla beat Canterbury, they'll jump into second spot. In rugby, I assume the rugby family know we're playing the Springboks this weekend, but how many know the matches at 2.30pm Saturday afternoon at Adelaide Oval? 
I'm loath to be critical of the Wallabies because we've got plenty of talent, but there is more to a team than putting 15 people on the paddock. Every week we play, the team is different. After the hammering that the Wallabies received at the hands of Argentina, who gets the chop? Right out of the squad entirely, but James O'Connor, thrown under the bus. The team concedes over 40 points and he gets the blame when he's in charge of the attack. I think the problem actually was defence, to be just truthful with you. It is a travesty that O'Connor has been treated in this way. However, Sydney Siders will soon be able to see the Wallabies against the Springboks at the brand new Allianz Stadium on Saturday week. It'll be the first international match at this magnificent new complex, which opens its doors on Sunday. Rugby and stadium sources are tipping a complete sellout. I have to declare an interest here. I have been on the Sydney Cricket Ground and Football Stadium Trust since goodness knows when, along with the chairman, Tony Shepherd, who's been involved in more outstanding infrastructure creations in this country than any other person. He worked under the then Energy Minister, Rex Connor, on the development of the Mumba to Sydney pipeline. He was chairman of Transfield Services and his first big project was the Sydney Harbour Tunnel. He worked with Transfield on the Lane Cove Tunnel and was chairman of the West Connex Delivery Authority when that massive project began. He knows a bit about building things, though I have to say, from personal experience, when you come to deal with governments, you're left with the impression that some of the bureaucratic wood ducks that you have to listen to think they know more than people like Tony Shepherd. But the chairman of Venues New South Wales is now called, joins me. Tony, thank you for your time. I think I'll start with one point, since I've, you've had all this experience with infrastructure. What an extraordinary achievement that this thing has come in on time and on budget when you think of all the interruptions that have been, bushfires, COVID, floods, wet weather, God knows what. It's a hell of an achievement, isn't it? It's a great achievement, Alan. We had a great contractor in John Holland and, and a great architect. We had Infrastructure New South Wales did a great job as project manager and our team led by Kerry Mather uh, were outstanding as the client. And the three of us worked synergistically. There was never any arguments and we we're all focused on getting the best possible job done on time and on budget and it succeeded. It is a model for contracting in Australia, yeah, in my Absolutely, view. and of course, not without its opponents. I remember that infamous day on radio when the then Labor Party leader before the last election, I can't remember the bloke's name, said he'd rip up the contract once Labor were elected, and they weren't, and the project wouldn't go ahead, and he'd have pleasure sacking me and all the board. Yes. Well, he got hammered at the election, and the stadium reconstruction went ahead. But just repeating, just think about this, what Tony Shepard just said, a summer of bushfires, Two years of global pandemic lockdowns, massive supply chain interruptions, a two-week government-imposed construction shutdown, regular deluges of flooding rain, and it's been delivered on time and on budget. I mean, you can't give enough points, can you, to everyone who worked collaboratively and cohesively to yeah. bring this project to what we'll see on Sunday. Yeah, and we've pioneered on that project the use of the rat test to test That's workers before point. they came on site. Yeah. 
We had no cross infections and we virtually lost no productivity mm. due to COVID. And Sydney-based suppliers and subbies? Yes, most of them. All, yeah, all the critical steel, yep. Western Sydney. Oh, and all Sydney LGAs, also yep. to 30 local government areas represented. Teams of people, you made that point during the rat test so yep. that you could keep the construction site open. But there were security people, hospitality people, yep. cleaners. I mean, the teamwork has been astonishing, hasn't it? It has been incredibly well organised. And the cooperation between the various parties, I have never seen it at this level before. Well, you've got some wonderful pictures that you're watching on the screen while I'm yeah. talking to Tony Shepherd, the chairman of Venues New South Wales. But statistics sometimes can bamboozle people. But compared to the previous stadium, there's a 230% increase in the enclosed floor area. That's incredibly generous, but it is built for the future. This is a 50-year investment. This stadium will stand the test of time. And what people want is they want space, they want room for serving and, and moving around safely without all being congested. They wanted adequate toilet facilities. I think we've got six times the toilet facilities yes. for women than we're in the old stadium. Yes, 600 female toilets, I have to tell you there are. There were 113 in the last. So ladies, you're being looked after. We understand the problems that you had. Yeah, well, they really miss those portaloos outside. I mean, they really did miss those. They really will miss those. They were iconic. <laughs> God, the number of meetings we've had about women being inconvenienced by the absence of appropriate toilets. Key point to make, 100% of the seats under cover. That's true. Yes, the drip line is just on the boundary, so 100% under cover. The old stadium, it was 30%. So, Six, 64 food and beverage outlets. I mean, yeah. eh? Yeah, it's incredible. But look, we, we've got, again, six or seven times the bench space we had in the old stadium. Yeah. And it was rena renowned for the delays at halftime. If you could get up there, get your pie and beer and get back, back during halftime, you were doing really well. Genius. You'd Absolutely. be 20 minutes into the second half. And I should say out to people out there, construction and demolition waste all recycled. Exactly. Now, Tony, you and I have been to some of these venues around the world. I've got to say, I've never seen change rooms for players and coaches no. and officials like this. I mean, the modernity of it, the space of it, unbelievable. I just hope that um, when they get on the paddock, they can play, play some <laughs> decent football to justify their magnificent facilities. Yeah. Um, and you can handle double headers, that is two matches on one day for both male and female matches. Yes, we can. Yes, the, the, the toilets are set up for both, um, you know, and, and they are, and the women's teams that have seen them are really impressed with them. I can remember in the old stadium, I said to the, uh, the captain of our champion rugby sevens, gold medal winners, that we're, we're going to fix the toilets up in the new stadium and they'll be, they'll be set up suitably for women. She said, that'll be a relief. I won't have to walk past your urinals when I go out to play. <laughs> <laughs> now, this uh, is a key point, because if you left your seat in the old stadium, or indeed in a lot of stadia around the world, well, you leave the game. Yes. Now, you leave your seat here, you'll be constantly connected to the field of play yep. because the 360 degree concourse allows open views of the field from the food and beverage outlets. That's correct. The whole idea is to keep the fan engaged and to make it a wonderful experience. Mm. And I mean, in terms of queuing up for food, which has driven people nuts in the past, 
There's a food and beverage point of sale for every 100 to 125 patrons, so you'll get served very quickly. You will get served very quickly. And look, you know all about this stuff because you've been in thousands of these infrastructure issues, but explain the stadium is designed, as I understand it, to deflect noise back into the stadium, Correct. which creates this amazing atmosphere. It does. Well, two things. It, does, it means it, it doesn't annoy our neighbours and, and, and it improves the quality of the sound. So the, the, the acoustic design of the stadium is absolutely world-class, uh, latest technology. Absolutely. The and so when we have concerts and things there, they will be absolutely superb. Mm. Environmentally, it meets the standards of this LEED, which is the gold accreditation. That's leadership in energy environmental design. Yes. And of course, if you want to get come from the bush, get your train in to Sydney Central Station. There's a two kilometre pathway from Sydney Central Station to the stadium. The roof structure, uh, what you know, this uses what, 40% less steel. Yes, it does. It's a lightweight structure, translucent. So the grass can still get sunshine, which is, you know, is critical for growing grass, you know, through that roof. So it, it will reduce the need for, you know, for heat lamps, uh, uh, you know, on the field. Amazing. It's amazing. amazing. You know, it is brilliantly designed. Yeah, 40,000 cubic metres of concrete yeah. was poured on the project. That's equivalent to 16 Olympic swimming pools. Yes, it is. There's a lot of concrete in there and a lot of steel. Yeah. yeah. And the electrical cable which services all the electrical services within the stadium, would stretch from Moore Park to Bankstown. Yes, that's right. That's incredible. The and it wiring's... all opens on Sunday. Yeah, all opens on Sunday. It all opens on Sunday. Community day, free day. Hopefully you've been able to get a ticket. And uh, Have you got a ticket? Is... Have you got I... a ticket? Can you I... get me a ticket? Oh, if you behave. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just, to, just to clarify this point though about opening, the gates open at 11am on Sunday, that's the community day, and that day ends at 3pm. Yeah. Now you most probably need a ticket now, but there may be some available at the gate. It, it'll be fantastic. I've been out there, I've seen it, it's unbelievable. And then the it starts again the evening gates, right. if you've got tickets, open at 5, and the formalities start at 630 and then the big Guy Sebastian concert is at 7.15, and all of that will be over by about 9 o'clock, I think, so That's it's right. going to be one hell of a day. Yeah. And then, of course, Saturday week, the big Wallabies versus Springboks. And I think what it's basically looks like being booked out. I think it will be over. It will be booked out. We will be at absolute capacity okay. for, for, the, for the Roosters game, for the Wallabies and for the Matildas. Mm. It'd be a huge week of football Absolutely. in Sydney, a massive well, week. Let me just say to you, this bloke here, Tony Shepherd, he's done a hell of a night and day job here because no one has his knowledge of infrastructure. It's mostly because of this bloke's know-how. I mean, we've all had a bit of an input and we fought the political battles, but at the end of the day, you've got to get the damn thing built. And it's his know-how and experience that means it's come in on time in spite of all of these interruptions and on budget, which I don't think can be said of any other major infrastructure project in the country. He only has one major weakness, and that is the chairman of the GWS Giants. Um, how are they <laughs> going? How they going? Well, look, we had a bit of a rough year. We got a new coach. We'll be back next year. <laughs> Alan, I've got complete confidence. Uh, nothing improves Nothing improves a team better than a new chairman. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can work on that too. <laughs> See you Sunday. Okay, Alan, right, thank Tony. you. There we are, Tony Shepard. It'll be a big day.
Sunday, all opening the brand new Allianz Stadium in Sydney in Moore Park opens on Sunday. You saw the pictures on the screen. I was in the gym this morning trying to recover from the million operations that I've had and a gentleman on an exercise bike turned to me and said, Alan, what a world we're living in. Is there any hope? Well, there's always hope, but you can't ignore the madness that's infecting us. There's a story today that I mentioned to you before that a club in Sydney has a safety and harassment policy and they'll employ a safety officer in a pink fluoro vest to deal with complaints. And allegedly, in order to make the venue a safe space, meeting eyes across the room, that is staring at someone, will be banned. You get kicked out. The rule says, if the attention you're giving someone is unwarranted, that is considered harassment. And security can kick out anyone who made another feel uncomfortable. It even justifies apparently calling in the police. As I said earlier, you can only hope joints like this go broke. Then we learn that the ANU, the Australian National University, has banned men from applying for the 10 new jobs in space technology at its Advanced Instrumentation and Technology Centre. Quote, applications will only be accepted by applicants identifying as women. This is an equal employment opportunity measure aiming to increase the representation of women in the field of instrumentation for astronomy in space, unquote. How can there be equal opportunity when men are banned? Then we learn that dozens of government departments and institutions, including the ABC, are seeking advice from a controversial trans lobby group that claims workplaces should have all gender toilets. And we're told this group, ACON, which stands for AIDS Council of New South Wales, is a self-appointed expert on LGBTQ equality, which, quote, has embedded itself at the heart of up to 60 government departments and agencies, including the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, schools, universities and police, as well as private business, unquote. And some of the changes brought into the workplace include all gender toilets at the ABC because single sex toilets can cause anxiety for some due to regularly being misgendered. Well, there is hope. The lady behind the website, Acon Exposed, has warned that Acon's controversial ideology and concepts were creeping into workplaces and increasingly being enshrined in school curricula and legislature. Kit Kowalski warns us, and I quote, Acon is creating a culture that supports a particular narrative that trans people are the most vulnerable, that there's no such thing as sex, that kids can change their gender, unquote. Well, note this. ACON gets $13 million of funding a year. Your money. Stop shaking your heads. I talked earlier about the things that the new federal government won't talk about. I warned that the construction industry was in crisis. I've said that several times on this program, and this will cost jobs. Subbies go unpaid. The housing crisis gets worse. Infrastructure projects either increase in price or have to be cancelled. Well, now, as I warned, another major building entity has joined all those that have gone into liquidation in the last 12 months. Oracle Homes owes 14 million and leaves 300 homes unfinished across New South Wales and Queensland. Simple story, recent and rapid rises in construction costs. I said on Monday, it was time the Albanese government started governing, that the construction industry is in free fall. I said on Monday, the problem was potentially more damaging than the problem of higher interest rates. And I said on Monday, and I quote my words, 
Not one person in the Albanese government has opened their mouth in relation to this crisis, unquote. And while the Albanese government via the oleaginous Chris Bowen continues to read from their national economic suicide note about demonising coal-fired power and persisting with the illusion that our electricity will come from 82% renewables by 2030, I think Bowen needs someone to give him a map of the world. Europe is facing a long winter. They've been down the renewables path, closing off coal-fired power, but trying now to reinstate it, and they're short of gas because Russia has shut down the Nord Stream pipeline. So power prices this week in France were seven times their level of a year ago. Germany in a similar mess. Remember Merkel was the queen of renewables and the Dutch gas price has increased 45% in one month. And the huge increase in energy costs is having economic impacts. In the UK, Citigroup have warned that Britain's inflation rate could top 18% early next year. And to confirm the stupidity that my gym friend alluded to, Novak Djokovic, unvaccinated, is not being allowed to enter the United States to compete in next week's US Open. Perhaps they'll wake up between now and next Monday. As John McEnroe rightly says, it is a joke. Well, the hope of the week is the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. We've been giving him a big airing this week. His influence in the critical area of education, remember he said he wanted indoctrination and ideology out of education. Well, school boards in Florida were voted for last night. Stacks of them voted along the DeSantis line in support of his edicts. One outfit ran a campaign committed to abolishing critical race theory from the public school curriculum. And of the 49 candidates that that organisation endorsed, 35 won their elections. In one county, a father gave an emotional testimony that the district had socially transitioned his 12-year-old daughter without his knowledge or consent, which he said may have driven her to attempt to take her life in the elementary school bathroom. Remember on Monday, I spoke about this World Economic Forum outfit who meet in Davos every year. That the mob who said in 2020, quote, the pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine and reset our world. All aspects of our societies and economies must be revamped from education to social contracts and working conditions, unquote. Reset the world. That is why my man in the gym asked me if we're going mad and what hope was there? Well, there is hope in the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. Here is the hope. This is what DeSantis said yesterday. I want to have the values not of Davos imposed on us, but of places like Destin and Dunedin, where I grew up. Um, things like the World Economic Forum, uh, those policies are dead on arrival in the state of Florida. Uh, we are not going to go down that road. Well, there you are, Ron DeSantis. You and I would say, let that be a text for the world, Governor Ron DeSantis. Well, before we go, let me make a couple of simple points about this net zero fraud. One word for it, fiasco is another. When you do your homework, which the Teals and the Greens and Bowen seem incapable of, and crunch the numbers, net zero is revealed for what it is. A pie in the sky, green pipe dream that will send Australia and the rest of the world broke. The latest presentation out of the University of Queensland's Julius Kruchnit Mineral Research Centre proves this point. It's a bit of a mouthful, but bear with me. 
The presentation titled, The Quantity of Metals Required to Manufacture Just One Generation of Renewable Technology to Phase Out Fossil Fuels, was put together by Professor Simon Michaud, an Associate Professor of Geometallurgy at the Geological Survey of Finland. The findings in Professor Michaud's presentation are chilling. He found that, one, the quantity of metal required to make just one generation of renewable tech units to replace fossil fuels is much larger than first thought. Two, current mining production of these metals is not even close to meeting demand. Three, current reported mineral reserves are also not enough in size. Now, let's take some examples. Copper, I mentioned earlier, to make enough wind turbines and solar panels and batteries to replace fossil fuels for 20 years, the world would need over, so this scholarship reveals, 4.5 billion tonnes of copper. Here's where it gets interesting. In 2019, the world mined only 24 million tonnes of copper, meaning it would take 189 years to produce enough copper to go net zero at current rates of production. Well, the same goes for nickel. The world would need just about 1 billion tonnes of nickel to make enough renewables to replace fossil fuels. But in 2019, the world only mined 2.4 million tonnes of nickel, meaning it would take 400 years to produce enough to go net zero at the current rates of production. Well, the situation gets even worse when it comes to lithium, cobalt and rare earth metals. According to Professor Michaud, it would take 9,920 years to produce enough lithium to go net zero at current rates of production. It would take 1,733 years to produce enough cobalt to go net zero, most of which would come, I might add, from Chinese-owned child mines in the Congo. In fact, for germanium, a very rare but important element required for renewable energy technologies, it would take over 29,000 years to produce enough of the metal required to go net zero. And I think we've got Albanese's climate change minister, Bowen, running around saying we can save the planet by having renewables power 82% of Australia by 2030. Chris Bowen, a dunce of the first order. But why should we pay for his stupidity? That's it from me tonight. I'll see you on Monday night at 8 o'clock. Fred Paul is up next. Enjoy your weekend. You're watching ADH-TV. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.